Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, September 30th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the very American history of the Chinese takeout box and a look at the new American core trend. Plus, archaeologists have uncovered a hidden neighborhood in the ancient Maya city of Tikal that sheds new light on the imperialism of the Teotihuacan. And a lost David Bowie album is finally being released. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So this was a quick link on Kaki.org earlier this week, and dang, did it deliver. Or should I say, takeouts. Consumer packaging design website Dyline recently wrote about the history of the Chinese takeout box and how, like so many things we think are authentic to other cultures or time periods, was really just invented in America around the turn of the 20th century. So the original form of what we now think of as the folded-up paper box used for lo mein and fried rice was patented in 1894 by inventor Frederick Weeks Wilcox as a paper pail based on a similar wooden pail used for transporting oysters. Yes, oysters. You could do a whole history of much of the world through the lens of oysters, which several writers have done, notably the great monotopic author Mark Kurlansky, but suffice it to say for now that oysters were not always a delicacy. In fact, they used to be one of the cheapest foods available, especially in port towns in the 19th century, making them incredibly popular and common among the working class. In New York City at the time, there were tons of places to buy oysters for a midday snack or to take home with you at the end of the workday. But as the dyline explains, quote, getting to the fleshy bits requires a bit of skill, and what's more, once shucked, they don't stay fresh for very long, a more pressing concern before widespread refrigeration. The need for an inexpensive, watertight package that can safely carry oysters home inspired the eventual invention of the oyster pail. End quote. Now, the original oyster pail was made of wood and had a locked cover. The new version from Wilcox was made out of a single piece of thick paper, allegedly inspired by Japanese origami, and folded in such a way to prevent leakage while also allowing steam to get out. The original design came with the metal handle to complete the pail functionality. But how did it go from being used for oysters to being used for Chinese food? Well, thanks to pollution and over-harvesting, oyster populations were severely dwindling at the start of the 20th century. Around the same time, there was a huge influx of Chinese immigrants to California. As Rudy Sanchez at Dyline puts it, many of those immigrants adapted and localized their beloved dishes from back home. Though, quote, American Chinese food would have its ups and downs in popularity, being lifted by its accommodation of the American palate and affordability with dips fueled by racist-inspired activities accusations of using rat and feline meat. As is often the case with racism in American history, deliciousness eventually won out, and Chinese food would go on to become one of the most popular cuisines in America, despite having staples like General Tso's, orange chicken, chop suey, and the fortune cookie absent from China's canon of traditional dishes. End quote. Oyster prices, meanwhile, continued to rise as they became more scarce, and later the post-World War II suburban migration in America led to a boom in Chinese food delivery. 
Chinese restaurant owners had always been among the first to innovate, so when restaurant sales went down as more people were content to stay home watching TV instead of going out for the night, it was Chinese restaurants who first really embraced the idea of takeout and delivery. The oyster pail was mostly used because it was cheap and practical. At the restaurant, they can be stored in stacks so they don't take up too much space, and for the consumer, it's a convenient way to eat your meal, whether you leave it boxed up or unfold it into a plate. The company who first mass-produced the pails were the Bloomer Brothers, who through several iterations would later become Foldpack, the company that still produces most of the paper takeout pails in the U.S. today, according to Time. Now, I'm unclear how many Chinese restaurants were actually using them to begin with, but in the 1970s, a graphic designer started adding stereotypical Americanized Chinese elements to the pails, the red pagoda stamps and messages like thank you or enjoy in that fictitious chop suey font. And from there, they became cemented in American consciousness as a symbol of Chinese food, even though they weren't traditionally used in China. As Sanchez put it in the dialine, quote, Like orange chicken, the paper pail container would be all but unrecognizable in China were it not for the exportation of American media like TV and film. Thanks to a more interconnected world, American Chinese food and all its trappings, including the folded takeout box, have made it back to the culture that inspired it, with restaurants devoted to the particular cuisine now in mainland China, serving homesick expatriates and curious young people alike. End quote. Which reminds me of the satirical trend surging on TikTok right now called American Core. Essentially, a rise of mostly white Americans were posting videos on TikTok showing off different items and overall aesthetic vibes that they associated with Japan or Korea, hashtagging the videos things like Japancore. It's basically this generation's version of weeaboos. Some Asian Americans, like Yu Fengdi, a college student in San Diego, were understandably offended by the trend. As Fengdi told The New Yorker, quote, It's so weird. The country is not an aesthetic. End quote. Riffing on how Americans treat other cultures as monoliths, exoticize them, and often confuse their origins, Fendi and others started an American core trend. Quoting The New Yorker, Just as Japan core treats Asian cultures as a series of exotic products ripe for the taking, American core videos feature Asian American TikTokers visiting Walmart or other chain stores to gawk at mundane American foods, Twizzlers, Doritos, mayonnaise. In one of her American Core videos, which received more than a million views, Fengdi does her own version of a snack haul, trying Lay's potato chips in plain and lime flavor. The fact that the lime flavor is a Mexican product, not an American one, is part of her commentary. People are like, check out my Korean snack haul. Then they feature Taiwanese boba ice cream, Fengdi says. That's not Korean. It's fine to appreciate another culture's staples, she added, but strange to fetishize them. End quote. Kind of reminds me how one of the symbols Americans most associate with Chinese cuisine, the paper takeout box, is not Chinese at all, but rather an American invention and in fact may have been inspired by a Japanese art form. An American core has spawned a lot of interesting conversations, both in its original intent about where to draw the line between appreciation and appropriation of other cultures, but also whether one can appropriate American culture, especially considering how so many aspects of American culture have, as The New Yorker put it, quote, been marketed and sold the world over, made available to anyone who can afford it, 
end quote. And another interesting ripple of American core is that there are a number of non-Americans visiting America for the first time and making genuine TikToks about how interesting or strange things like Cracker Barrels and Waffle Houses are. They're being lumped in with American core, with people assuming that they're being satirical when actually their intrigue is genuine. In one of them, Yuki Chikamori, a 22-year-old who recently started school near my hometown in Texas, visits a Panda Express, which she notes she always wanted to try after seeing the fast food chain in American TV shows. Set to a Harry Styles song, the TikTok shows Chikamori ordering, explaining the food options to reviewers, and very happily enjoying the meal. At the end, she accidentally launches a fortune cookie onto the floor when she tries to open the package, smashing it into pieces. Fortune cookies are another U.S.-based creation that many think are authentic to Chinese cuisine, and at least according to some accounts, were originally created by Japanese immigrants to the U.S. based on a similar cookie from Kyoto. So, in a very roundabout way, I guess Chikamori was getting more in touch with her own Japanese culture than she realized. One last thing before I go, I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to a hypnotizing 13-second video I found while researching that shows how a machine now folds the paper takeout boxes in just one quick punch. It's very cool. Archaeologists in Guatemala have uncovered a hidden neighborhood in the ancient Maya city of Tikal, and this finding, apart from being yet another cool flex of the possibilities of LiDAR technology, could bolster arguments that the nearby city of Teotihuacan had a stronger influence on Tikal than is often thought. Quoting Gizmodo, for the first 500 years of the first millennium, Teotihuacan was the largest and most powerful city in the ancient Americas. At its peak, the city hosted over 100,000 inhabitants as it exerted its economic, cultural, and imperialistic influence over a wide region. Tikal, a Maya city located more than 750 miles away in what is now Guatemala, was considerably smaller. End quote. Smaller in terms of geographic size, but the two were well-matched in population numbers. Tikal has been the object of excavations since the 1950s and is one of the largest archaeological sites of pre-Columbian Maya civilization. It's dotted with the ruins of temples, pyramids, monuments, and other structures. Quoting Brown University, Though little is known about the people who founded and governed Teotihuacan, it's clear that, like the Romans, their influence extended far beyond their metropolitan center. Evidence shows that they shaped and colonized countless communities hundreds of miles away. Stephen Houston, a professor of anthropology at Brown, said anthropologists have known for decades that inhabitants of the two cities were in contact and often traded with one another for centuries before Teotihuacan conquered Tikal around the year 378 AD. There's also ample evidence suggesting that between the 2nd and 6th centuries AD, Maya elites and scribes lived in Teotihuacan, some bringing elements of the empire's culture and materials, including its unique funerary rituals, slope-and-panel architectural style, and green obsidian back home to Tikal. Another Maya expert, David Stewart of UT Austin, has translated inscriptions that described the era when Teotihuacan generals, including one named Born from Fire, traveled to Tikal and unseated the local Maya king. End quote. But this new finding shows that the Teotihuacan influence might have been even more aggressive than previously thought. Gizmodo explains how the discovery was made. Quote, 
The area of Tikal where the complex was recently found hadn't been explored until now because archaeologists thought the rolling hills that covered the region were a natural part of the landscape. A research consortium known as the Pakunam LiDAR Initiative used LiDAR, a laser-based sensing technique, to create 3D representations of the surface and detect structural features. A ground team led by Guatemalan archaeologist Edwin Roman Ramirez then explored the site, which encompasses roughly 62 acres. The team found one major and enclosed district with a pyramid along its eastern side. Several small buildings were found around these structures, including many that remain deeply buried, as Houston from Brown, first author of the new study, explained in an email. The LIDAR surprised us mightily, he wrote, as very careful maps had previously overlooked this district, end quote. Publishing their work yesterday in the journal Antiquity, the researchers detail how the ground team's excavations confirmed the LIDAR results and also why the newly uncovered neighborhood suggest Teotihuacan occupation. Quoting Art News, The Tikal neighborhood was designed to replicate Teotihuacan's citadel, including construction with mud plaster in lieu of traditional Maya limestone, Teotihuacan-style cornices and terraces, and a north-facing orientation of the buildings. The citadel is about 30% smaller than the one at Teotihuacan. It has the same north-south wings on the eastern pyramid, an enclosed square plaza in front, and a reservoir instead of a canal to the north. Its northeast orientation mirrors the urban grid at Teotihuacan. Houston said in an email to Art News, The main pyramid of the building at Tikal is in Teotihuacan style, and buildings nearby use a new form of construction, of packed earth and mud not seen before. The layout of this new construction, even its relation to water supplies and a road to the front, all resemble Teotihuacan. It almost suggests that local builders were told to use an entirely non-local building technology while constructing this sprawling new building complex. It seems what might have been the royal or imperial palace of Teotihuacan was being replicated as a part of a planned precinct of Tikal. End quote. They also found projectile points crafted in both the Maya's trademark flint and the Teotihuacan people's trademark green obsidian, suggesting a conflict that occurred. Also, they found human remains displaying the funerary items common to others found in Teotihuacan but not customary in Tikal. Further study of the human remains and the site itself will continue this fall as the team hopes to piece together more about this unexpected and striking discovery. As Houston put it, quote, at this time, people are quite interested in the process of colonization and its aftermath, and in how our views of the world are informed or distorted by the expansion of economic and political systems around the globe. Before European colonization of the Americas, there were empires and kingdoms of disproportionate influence and strength interacting with smaller civilizations in a way that left a large impact. Exploring Teotihuacan's influence on Mesoamerica could be a way to explore the beginnings of colonialism and its oppression and local collusions, end quote. A lost David Bowie album from 2001, which leaked online 10 years ago, is finally getting an official release. The album, called Toy, was conceived at the time when Bowie was transitioning from lots of synth and electronica to live instruments. Part of the album would be new, live instrument versions of some of his earliest material, as well as a handful of new songs. And though it was recorded live in the studio back in 2000, disagreements with the record company and subsequent disinterest on Bowie's part led to it never being fully released, and may have also fueled his switch from EMI Virgin to Columbia Records. 
Now, the toy album will be released on November 26th as part of an archival box set called Brilliant Adventure, which collects remasters of Bowie's works from 1992 to 2001. And in January, a multi-disc set called Toy Box will feature just the album on its own. Pitchfork adds that the other discs in that set will feature proposed b-sides, alternative versions, and the Tibet version of Silly Boy Blue featuring Philip Glass on piano and Moby on guitar. Mark Platty, the album's co-producer, said in a statement, quote, Toy is like a moment in time captured in an amber of joy, fire, and energy. It's the sound of people happy to be playing music. David revisited and re-examined his work from decades prior through prisms of experience and fresh perspective, a parallel not lost on me as I now revisit it 20 years later. From time to time, he used to say, Mark, this is our album. I think because he knew I was so deeply in the trenches with him on that journey. I'm happy to finally be able to say it now belongs to all of us. End quote. So today, September 30th, is International Podcast Day, a day to celebrate podcasting and help people discover new podcasts to love. And to that end, if you've been enjoying the Kotki Ride Home, my humble ask today is if you wouldn't mind sharing it with someone that you think might like it too, whether that's posting on social media or just mentioning it to a good friend one-on-one. I really appreciate the heck out of each one of you who tunes into this show Thank you for coming back day after day. It really does mean the world. And if you want to celebrate this day further, you can check out the International Podcast Day tag on Twitter to find some other great podcasts to listen to and support, or maybe just find some other podcast lovers to follow. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 